If you have left your bookmark in the book of Nahum for a couple of weeks, you're off to a good start this morning. Because I'd like to take you there one more time. The book of Nahum. Find chapter number one. That's a minor prophet. If you're with us uh, for the first time in our study here on the book of Nahum, you'll find that book, a very small book, just a couple of pages long, in between Micah and Habakkuk. Uh, if that helps, you could find the book of Psalms and keep working toward the uh, New Testament or find the book of Matthew and start backing up into the Old Testament and Nahum will come up sooner or later there or just look in the index if that helps. Uh, I think we forget sometimes there's an index in the front of our Bibles, most of them anyway. Book of Nahum, chapter number one. We've been on a study of the character of God in the midst of wicked people. And uh, this is our fourth time we've gone into this chapter to look at the character of our God. And that's been our emphasis and a reason for thanks. You're going to find today to be a very unusual approach, and yet at the same time one that I trust at the end we will have another cause to be thankful uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today so, so very thankful for who you are. We've heard the song that we've sung so many times about your faithfulness and how great it is. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for that. As we contemplate your work in our lives and the process that you take us through and the steps that we take day by day to be more like Christ, we thank you, Lord for your ever-faithfulness to us. Even in the midst of our study today, we're going to be mindful of your faithful work in our life. And I trust, Lord, that our eyes will be upon you, our hearts will be drawn to you, and our, our spirits lifted up before you in praise of who you are. Help us with our study today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just to set the context for you, one more time, the book of Jonah we're very familiar with, uh, the story of Jonah, the whale, and all the rest that we read of. Uh, Jonah was sent by God to the nation of Assyria, to the capital of that nation called Nineveh, in order to proclaim a message to them that God intended to destroy them. They were a wicked people. And as Jonah first didn't want to go, and then thought better of it after a little trip to a whale, that he ought to go, he went to Nineveh, he proclaimed the message, and lo and behold, the people repented. What an incredible story that is. They repented, and God spared them. We come to the days of Nahum about a hundred years later. God has a message again for Assyria. Now this time the message isn't going to them. It's going to a tribe called Judah. Judah will receive the message. And in the words that we are reading in Nahum, we are finding the character of God in the midst of wicked people. We assume it's the Assyrians that are the wicked people. And that's a good assumption because they very much were. But it's also Judah was the wicked people. 
And Judah needed this message. For Judah still could repent. Judah could respond to the character of God. They ought to. They've been spared by the Lord on previous occasions, especially in light of the Assyrians. It was the Assyrians who had captured the northern kingdom we call Israel. It wasn't very long before this message came. It wasn't even perhaps 60 years. But Israel to the north had fallen to the Assyrians in the fierceness of their wrath, and, and Judah was up to their neck with the Assyrians. If you read some of the accounts, even in the book of uh, Isaiah, you'll find incredible things the Lord had done for them when the Assyrians had come to town. But Judah was worthy of punishment. Judah, God's people, was worthy of punishment. It didn't take long after this message, within 55 years, that they would know what it was like to be under the wrath of Babylon. And the first of the Babylonian attacks began in 605. I would just simply say it this way. They didn't pay much attention to this letter. They did not. Let's give the Assyrians credit for the fact that the first time they heard it with Jonah, they responded. Judah hears it here, and they will not change. They will not change. And God will punish them in 55 years. But what do we learn of God's character in the midst of all these things? Verse number 3, we saw in chapter number 1, it says that the Lord is slow to anger. His patience is incredible. Incredible. We talked about that several weeks ago. God's great patience. And yet God's great power. Also in that verse, He's great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He's great in power. We saw again in verse number 7 that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. We found great comfort in those words. Yet they're spoken to a disobedient group of people with hopes that they would respond to such a thing and come to Him. Find Him their refuge. Find that He is good. We saw just a few nights ago when we had a Thanksgiving Eve service. We were down in verse number 12 through verse 15. And, and the fact that the Lord rescues is before us. He says at the end of verse 12, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break His yoke bar from upon you. I will tear off your shackles. And then further down in verse 15, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. So celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. The Lord rescues. He did in that day. He does in our day too. We have had some time reflecting upon his patience and his power, his goodness, and the fact that he rescues. These are all within 15 verses of this message. 
of intense wrath. The character of God in these four ways. Now, the majority of the prophecy, as you can see, that's just chapter 1. There's chapter 2, there's chapter 3, and we talked about this uh, quite a bit last time. These chapters are full of punishment. Full of it. Just description after description after description of punishment. Now, I imagine if I was a man living in Judah at the time this message came out, and it was handed me to read, and I read it, and I realized that it was a punishment against Assyria, I'd feel pretty good about it. Wouldn't you? After all, that's the way we play and root for our football teams. When we're winning, we feel pretty good. When the opponent is getting smashed, we feel pretty good. But when it's turned on us, we don't like that. So I can only imagine the Judeans hearing this message for the first time thinking, Oh Lord, how wonderful this is. You're going to deal with them. You're going to punish them. You're going to make them. You're going to straighten them out. And all the while, it was really a message to them. If they would only pay heed... This is what God was giving to them. He didn't send it to the Assyrians. He sent it to, to them. There was a lesson to learn there. Of course, if we were the Judeans and we heard that message, we would have repented, wouldn't we? We would have gotten things right with the Lord. We would have said, yes, Lord, we see what you mean, and we're going to be very careful now to walk in your ways. Well, maybe we wouldn't have been that way. Maybe we would have been just like them. But this picture is very important. As we look at the majority of this letter is speaking of his wrath, we start to understand God better. But here's what I've noticed. Think this through for a moment and see if I'm right. More times than not, we evaluate God's character by our circumstances. We measure God by the events in our life. We think that God is a great God when things are going great for us. We sometimes, and maybe we won't say this out loud, but we question whether or not He cares when things are not going well. Am I close? I think so. When we studied this topic called theology, which is a study of God, we can approach it like most people do and say God is this way or that way in character based on our lives, our circumstances, our events. Or we could go to the textbook manner of studying God and break out an old theology book, which you might not even have on your shelf, that talks about his attributes. And some of those you'd recognize. If I started in on the attributes of God and I say that uh, he was omniscient, you would tell me that meant what? He knows everything. Um, omniscient. If I say that he's omnipotent, you would tell me what? He's all-powerful. If I said he's omnipresent, that's a giveaway. That means he's everywhere. He's present 
everywhere. If I asked you to give me a list of some of his attributes, no doubt you'd say love, wouldn't you? You probably would. You'd say righteous. You'd say truth, perhaps. Holiness. Maybe you'd reference his sovereignty. Maybe you'd speak of his unity. Say, huh? Yes. What about this one? Simplicity. Say, Pastor, it never sounds simple. His simplicity. His infinity. That's a big word there. No limits on him. No boundaries on him. His immutability. Do you like that word? You know what that means, don't you? Immutability? He never changes. Now that's a hard one to grasp sometimes. But it's true. He never changes. His eternity. Now, is that different from infinity? Yes, it is. His eternity. The fact that he's endless. Whichever direction you want to face. To the past, to the future. How about his freedom? You say, well, you know, those words are just not as common as omnipotence, omniscience, and words like that. Well, that's true. Matter of fact, I only gave you a sample of the whole list out there that refers to the attributes, the characteristics of our God. The topic is incredible. And as you start to dig through these terms and you say, you know, this is getting bigger and bigger. The, the more I try to understand, the more it seems I can't understand. There's one thing that must be known. When we talk about the character of God, it never changes. I know we used the word immutable a few minutes ago, but there's a reality to this. It does not change. His character does not change. When I say that he loves, guess how often he loves? All the time. Guess to what degree he loves? Completely. All the time. I could put any one of these characteristics in the blank and say that's true of him 100% of the time. This is where it starts to get very interesting. Because we could speak of his love, we could speak of his justice, we could speak of his holiness, we could speak of his righteousness, we could speak of his sovereignty, we could put anything in there and say, yes, 100% all the time, all the time. I'm going to throw a word at you. It's also true of his character. Jealous. He is a jealous God. How often? A hundred percent of the time. You say, uh-oh, Pastor, what are we up to today? Verse number two. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Ooh. That's his character and his action. But his character starts in verse 2. Matter of fact, it's the first references to his character in the whole book. 
We've talked about his goodness. We like that. We've talked about his patience, and we like that. We talk about his power. We talk about the fact he rescued us. All of those in the sequence of this book comes after the first characteristic given. He's jealous. Now that kind of stops us right in our tracks for a minute, doesn't it? You say, but, but pastor, that's, that's not a good term. <laughs> We're told not to be that way. Matter of fact, we even call it some creature with, that's green and has one eye. The green monster of jealousy. We've been told not to be jealous. We usually discredit those who are jealous. But here it says, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Those are the words in front of us in verse number 2. So, let's walk through this. But I want to stress as we go into our study here this morning, it's very important that you understand that this is also that characteristic that has to be kept in balance with the rest. With the rest. If you were to go and buy tires for your car, and they were to attach the tires to your car for you, you would be very thankful if they balance your tires. It seems like a insignificant little thing. They're just tapping these little metal things, these little clip-like things onto the inside of your tires. And if they don't look very big, they don't even look like they make much of a difference. After all, you bought a round tire, didn't you? Shouldn't they be round? Shouldn't they just naturally go on and go round and round and right? But if you do not balance them, you've got a problem. And you'll discover it real soon. A vibration. A noise you've never heard coming out of the front of your car before. That's your tire. Because it's not perfectly round, and I don't understand the science of it all, but they're not balanced. So your tire will vibrate. It will make a noise. On top of that, it will start to wear funny. One side of it, or another side of it, one piece or a part of that. It's very interesting to look at the wear of a tire. You say, well, how did it do that? I once had a tire that wore in circles all around the inside of it. And some of you could tell me why. I don't know. The outside looks great. The inside had these funny little spots like somebody took a knife and whittled away on my tire. Strange thing. I don't understand all that, but I do know you get very bad fuel economy when your tire's not round like they should be. And eventually it starts causing mechanical problems. Little pieces are starting to come a little looser than they used to be. Uh, joints and parts and pieces and bolts and springs and shocks and struts and, you know, little things that add up to expensive things. Why? Because you didn't think that little metal clip inside your tire was going to make much of a difference. When it comes to theology, sometimes we think, well, that's a little point. Maybe it's not so important. But it's so easy for us, even in theology, to get out of balance. Slightly out of balance. It produces a little problem, like inaccuracy. Is that important? Yes. Here's how I like to describe inaccuracy say that we all decided this afternoon we were going out to have a contest with archery. Uh, we were going to set up a nice 
target a little ways away, maybe 50, 75 yards away. That seems like a long ways, but they give you the bow, they give you the arrow, all they say is hit that little red spot in the middle. So you stand there to aim at that target. Say that you're just, let's say you're only a quarter of an inch off the target when you shoot. Does that mean you're going to be a quarter of an inch off the target when it lands? No, because the further it goes, the further the gap gets. Unless, of course, you can do it with incredible speed. But the average person like me, I'd be off three feet. Because I start a half inch or a quarter inch short. Theological inaccuracies work that way. We miss it just a little bit, but we build upon that little bit, and before you know it, we're way off course. Most of the doctrinal errors in Scripture, most of the cults that we read of, come from theological inaccuracies about our God. They have misunderstood. They don't understand His character. They don't understand His work. As a result, they get very noisy in their theological discussions. And poor application of truth. And a lot of problems come from that. You see, what man would prefer is to shape God's character how it makes us feel the best. We would like to, to give him power, but not so much, really. Uh, we, we do want him to have enough power at least to help us when we're in need. But not enough power to really hurt us. We, you see, we, we'd like God to know things, but not everything. We'd like to be able to keep some things from Him, after all. Uh, we, we want a God who can give us a good day. But we'd also like a God we could negotiate with, wouldn't we? Wouldn't that be great if we, if we had a God much more like a genie? Who would do what we ask him to do and be there whenever we call him and fulfill all our wishes? And yet, he could love us? Sure, he could love us, but he doesn't need to punish us. He could just let us be as we are. Wouldn't we love a God who loves us like that? A God who controls only the bad guys? And lets us live out our own personal lives as we want? Now, I don't know if I'm describing any of us in this room. But I want to ask you something. Do you really want a God who is loving, but not just? Do you really want a God who is powerful, and yet not caring? The word is jealous. More times than not, we want to eliminate that from the list of his characteristics. We, we want to say, no, that, that just sounds negative. It sounds like a negative trait. I'm going to convince you this morning it is not a negative trait. It is man who has created it into a negative thing. This word jealous in the Hebrew, kana, is a Hebrew word. It means to be zealous. Zealous. Jealous, provoked to jealousy, very jealous. 
It is a very strong term. It's a competitive term. It's, in a positive sense, to be filled with righteous zeal. Righteous zeal. Now let me define what it looks like and show you how it looks. When the Lord says he's righteous in his dealings with his own people, Judah, for example, here in the book of Nahum, he's jealous of his people. He protects what belongs to him. Starting to see a picture? He protects what belongs to him. God has told them from the very beginning of their relationship that he is a jealous God. He did not hold that back. He stated it just for what it is. I'll show you. Keep your bookmark here. You want to find it again. Go back to the book of Exodus. Do you know what is given to us in Exodus chapter 20? Take a wild guess. The Ten Commandments. Good. Exodus chapter 20. Let's just start right at the beginning here. Chapter 20. Verse number 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or the likeness of what is in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Wow. He didn't wait long, did he? Matter of fact, as you've been reading with me in these first couple of verses, that's the first character trait used to describe him. A jealous God. I am a jealous God, he says. Now, chapter 34 of Exodus, not far away. Verse number 14. 34, verse 14. It says, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Whoa, does that really set you off here? Look at what he just called himself. What's, what's your name? Jealous. Have you ever seen that phrase before? You ever see that verse? Wow. I can give you a handful more. Won't read them all, but here they are, if you're keeping them. Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 15. If you want to abbreviate, it's quicker, D-E-U-T. Deuteronomy 6, 15. Deuteronomy 4, 24. Deuteronomy 5, verse 9. Deuteronomy 32, verse 16. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Why did he keep saying that? This was the law. He was talking to his people. He said, I will have no rivals. None. In my relationship with you. Yes, he gives a lot of strong warnings towards sinners. He tells us, matter of fact, don't even be jealous of the sinner. That is. That's not me. 
Do not be jealous of the sinner. Don't be envious of the sinner, because he's here today and he's gone tomorrow. <laughs> Mentions that. But here's the point. When you're reading these words, we taint the word jealousy by the way we view it. By the way we view it. God uses it in reference to his justice. God uses it in reference to his holiness, in reference to his truth, in reference to his character, in reference to his love. God is jealous. God is jealous. I am very jealous, he said, of Zion. I am jealous of my name. I am jealous of my land. I am jealous of my people. Lots of references all over the Old Testament. He says, I am very jealous about those things. You want to hear another one? I'll just start reading it. You can mark it down in your notes from John chapter 2. It goes like this. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up into Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at the tables. And he made a scourge of cord, and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he says, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. Do you want to guess what that word zeal is? In the Hebrew? Do you want to guess that it's the exact same word that we're studying here in the book of Nahum? If you do, you're right. That was a display of a jealous righteousness. A jealous holiness. A, a protection of what belonged to him. J. Vernon McGee said this little quote. Jealous, according to Webster's Dictionary, means exacting, exclusive devotion. God is a jealous God, and He demands that His people worship Him alone. When any people, no matter who they are, turn to idolatry or turn to sin, all which is contrary to God, and when they give themselves to it, God is jealous. Nahum wrote those words at the start of a letter. Now, why should it matter to us? Why should this matter to us? Why, what's the significance? Well, let's link it just with a simple concept we understand. How often does Scripture say God loves you? He said that a lot in the Old Testament, too, to his people. He loves them. He, he made that very clear. This love is not weak. This is not a flimsy love. This is not a fragile love. This is a jealous love. It is about the strongest way you could attach a, a term to it to understand it. It is an intensely jealous love. His love is to those who belong to him. And he loves them with strength. He loves them with protection. He will protect his own. After all, he said of Judah once, to touch them is to touch the apple of my eye. 
That's the pupil. How many of us like people touching their pupils? He says, that's what it's like to me when you touch my people. He has a protecting love. That's the nature of jealousy. It will protect its own. It is a possessive love. These belong to him. He loves them. He possesses that. That's his right. That's his love. It's a possessive love. It's a passionate love. It's a passionate love. Oh, let me say it this way. You are not mistaken that he loves you when he loves you like this. Now, let me ask you. Do you want to be loved like that? Do you want to know that God loves you with great strength? That God loves you with great protection? That God loves you with great possession? That God loves you with great passion? That's his love for you. That is jealous in his love for you. That's not a negative trait, folks. A negative trait would be a God who loves you, uh, kind of. He never shows you. He never says so. You say, well, God, do you love me? He says, well, I told you once before. Years ago, don't you remember? Some people love like that, don't they? God's love is not like that at all. God's very active in his love. God's very passionate in his love. I don't think you want God with less than that. For when you talk of all his other attributes, you want them to go at 400%, don't you? What about this character? What about this trait? When it says that he's a jealous God, he loves you with all the strength and the protection and the possession and the passion that that love can muster. That's his love for you. Why else would he start a letter like this? He's talking to Nahum. He's talking to his people. He showed them that Israel disobeyed me and they went into punishment. Assyria had their chance, they go into punishment. Judah, Judah, listen to me. I love you with an intense passion. Don't do it. You see it? What an appeal. What a call. This is the kind of God that says these words. My love for you is that great that I call you to myself. Yes, he does avenge. Yes, he does bring wrath on the enemies. He reserves wrath for the enemies. But this is God's, God's attention toward you. He's a jealous and avenging God. In his patience, he is like that. In his power, he is like that. In his goodness, he is like that. When he rescues, he is like that. He is a jealous God. Nothing less. Nothing less. I bring this before your attention here this morning. Because I think that you do appreciate this term after all. 
I think you do. I think you're very glad to hear that your God loves you that much. That He thinks of you that much. I could give you evidence. He sent His Son to die for you. What greater act of zealousness would you ever see? He sent His Son to die for you. He made you a promise that if you believe in Him, you have everlasting life. Where are you going to spend that? With Him. Right? Doesn't it sound like He wants you with Him? Isn't the promise He goes to prepare a place for you? If He goes and prepares a place for you, He'll come and receive you unto Himself and take you to that place and leave you there and go on and do something else? Or is it not, I'll take you unto Myself, there you'll be with Me. That's His love for you. That's His love for His people here. That as we read of these words, Nahum, what a message. What a description of the character of our God. In the midst of wicked people, He loves His people. He's passionate about His people. He's patient toward His people. He's powerful toward His people. He's good to His people. He rescues His people. Heavenly Father, as a congregation, we stop right here at this point. We bow our hearts and our heads before You. We get a very powerful glimpse of who You are. Even words that are uncomfortable, perhaps, Certainly words words that we use very rarely, and perhaps we've never used in reference to you. We reflect upon your love for any other trait, but love especially, and realize you don't love us 75% or 80%, but 100%, the fullness of all your love has been given to us the fullness of all your righteousness has been given in our direction your grace we've received in full your mercy we've received in full your forgiveness we've received in full in everything you have done for us you have done it with such intensity such passion such power, such protection, such possession. There is no greater word, perhaps, to label it than that you are our jealous God. And you love us like that. We're overwhelmed. If we would only contemplate it, Lord, we're overwhelmed. But we thank you for it. It's good for our soul to see these words today if we would just rest in it now and realize that this is a God who is this way all the time toward us. Thank you for that love. Thank you for loving us.
We ask these things, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.